0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today we will begin the epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest epic tale still in existence. Now, some of you may have felt that the last two episodes that brought us into Sumerian legend had a bit too much talking and not enough action. And while Gilgamesh is fully capable of a good long speech, we will see that he is just as capable of smash-bang action as any modern hero. Now, for those of you who skipped the first two episodes, it's fine, they provide context for the city of Uruk, but Gilgamesh's tale is more than capable of standing on its own. But to reset the stage, we are in the city of Uruk, on the north bank of the Euphrates River in the south-central portion of the nation that still bears that 5,000-year-old name, Iraq. The year is 2,700 BCE, and all the trappings of civilization remain, for these people, recent inventions. The story begins at the ending, informing us that Gilgamesh had, by the end of his journey, seen everything. He had all wisdom and all knowledge. He knew the deep secrets of the universe, and he knew the knowledge men possessed before the Great Flood, called Noah's Flood by the Hebrews. Exhausted. He stumbles back into his town, past the high walls that he had built for the city's safety, through the rich marketplaces that he had brought prosperity to, and finally into the palace temples as high as mountains that he had constructed for the glory of gods and kings, and slumping, worn and beaten from travel, into his throne. He writes by his own hand the following story, carving it into clay tablets that still survive to this day. This is the epic of Gilgamesh, and every word of it is true. Surpassing all kings in honor, glory, and merit, Gilgamesh was a literal giant. He towered over other men and was stronger than rampaging bull. Through physical prowess alone, he was able to win victories in battle, defeating whole armies right at the vanguard, then personally tearing holes through city walls to break a siege. He had the strength to personally clear the rubble from collapsed mountain passes, and stood easily nine feet tall. Of course, he was also beautiful, perfectly formed face and chiseled muscles to make Schwarzenegger jealous. His hair flowed in a bountiful harvest down his shoulders, and his beard was like a god itself. Not that his beard was like a god's beard, mind you, no, no. His beard was like a god itself. He was king over Uruk by right of descent from the gods, being the son of King Lugalbanda from last episode, whose own father was Shamash the Sun, as in the actual burning disk of the sun, not merely god of the sun. And his mother was the goddess of cattle, Ninsan, a deity of prosperity and civilization, as well as of maternal affairs. Famously, he is two-thirds divine and one-third man because his mother... Is fully a god and his father only partially so. This is a significant category among mythic figures because it puts him in a unique category, a matter which will be coming up many times throughout the epic. Gods are of course fully divine, while your typical demigod hero like Hercules or Arjuna are exactly half and half. Now while Gilgamesh is not full god, and thus experiences many mortal limitations, he's well above a typical demigod, thus exceeding his natural category. Now, imagine, if you will, that you are ruling over a prosperous city and have literally no constraints on your power. No legal constraints, since of course those haven't really been invented yet, and no practical constraints, since you literally crush entire rebel armies single-handedly. Well now, in this circumstance, you might decide that, heck, you can implement every grand idea for improving the world that comes to your mind. There's no constraints. There's no budgets. So why not expand the irrigation network on the plains of Kulaba? Why not raise the walls of Uruk even higher? Why not expand the temple palaces of the gods? All you have to do is conscript the men of Uruk, to more and more state mandatory work projects. And if they complain, you can beat the tar out of any rebels until they do what you tell them. But let's be real here. It wouldn't all be increasing the glory of your divine city. There would be a fair bit of me time as well. Now for me personally, that would be all the Mexican food I could eat till I couldn't lift my fat butt off of a chair. But Gilgamesh had a deep appreciation for women. All the women. He left, according to the tablet, no maiden to her mother, no girl to her betrothed, and no bride to her husband. And so, with his oversized strength and his oversized desires, he taxed the people of Uruk, the men and the women, day and night, and rebellion was simply impossible. And so the people of Uruk went up the chain and pleaded with the gods themselves, begging that the city be spared from Gilgamesh's cruelty. Gods discussed among themselves, saying that, eh, this isn't a great situation, that, you know, maybe if he had somewhere to direct all this excess boyish energy, then he wouldn't be so overbearing on all the commoners. And so they summoned Aruru, the goddess of birth and silly baby talk, and Aruru birthed for Gilgamesh a new playmate. Aruru, and isn't that so much fun to say, took some clay, balled it up in her hands, and tossed it into the wilderness to mature. Now this ball of clay was born in the silence of the deep wilderness. He was born brave and strong, and born as naked as an animal. He was covered in hair like a filthy savage, and his hair was long as a woman's. He didn't know how to walk on two legs, and he frolicked by the water holes with the forest animals. In fact, he was such good friends with the forest animals that he started using his mighty strength to protect them from hunters. He tore up traps, he filled in pits, he beat up hunters that came into the forest. And so, the Mesopotamian Huntsmen's Union held a membership meeting in which they voted to send their grievance to the lobbying arm for consideration by the government. And when Gilgamesh heard that there was a wild man who thought he was an animal, the wise king knew exactly how to fix it. Gilgamesh called to the Temple of Ishtar, a place he knew well. Now, for thousands of years, the goddess Ishtar was one of the most popular gods in Mesopotamia, and even into Phoenicia and beyond. Her temples had a practice called divine prostitution, which took a few different forms but are pretty much exactly what it sounds like. And so Gilgamesh called for Shamhat, the most skilled of the harlot priestesses, and sent her along with a hunter out to the watering hole where the beast man had been spotted. Shamhat and the hunter waited for a time in a hunting blind near the watering hole, but finally the wild man showed up. The hunter helpfully pointed out the eight-foot-tall mountain of muscle, but Shamhat was already up out of the hunting blind. She knew her business, but more importantly, at first sight of him, she knew her pleasure too. While Gilgamesh was like a sculpted marble god, this wild man was the king's equal in raw masculinity, though rougher, wilder, and he awoke in her a less civilized sort of lust. Her robes were already falling off by the time the wild man saw her, and of course. This was the first human woman he'd ever seen. Not to mention the fact that she was the most beautiful woman in the temple of Ishtar. For seven days, Shamhat showed him the joy of intimacy before they finally paused for a moment and just lay there on the grass by the watering hole. And after he'd caught his breath, the wild man looked around and he noticed that at some point during their passion, probably right at the very beginning, all the wild animals had fled. He got up while Shamhat napped and went through the forest to find his animal friends, but they all fled the human stench that clung to his skin. The pure animal within him had been tainted by humanity, and now nature feared him. He returned to Shamhat in confusion. She had him sit on the grass and gave him some wrappings to clothe himself with. He asked her why the animals had all fled from him, and she said that it was because he had gained wisdom, the wisdom of the gods. She asked if he knew his name, and he said, I am Enkidu. Well, mighty Enkidu, she asked, how do you feel? I feel like I'm missing something, he responded. She explained that what he was missing was companionship. He could no longer live alone like the animals did and must now seek out a companion who would be his equal. Fortunately, in the nearby city of Uruk was a man who could equal Enkidu in strength and power and beauty. So she offered to take Enkidu to the city of Uruk, and completely smitten by her, he nodded in eager willingness. Along the way, they stopped at a shepherd's hut. Both were starving after seven days of heavy exertion, so they went in to get a meal from the shepherds. As they walked into the hut, the shepherds looked up at Enkidu and shouted in shock. By all the gods of Uruk, he is massive. This fellow is almost as tall as King Gilgamesh and maybe broader at the shoulders. Careful he doesn't wreck the roof of my hut just by standing up straight. On top of what mountain did you find this giant priestess? She explained that they were headed to Uruk to meet the king and needed food for the journey. The shepherds, unwilling to refuse either a wealthy, beautiful priestess, or an eight-foot-tall, muscle-bound giant, laid out bread and wine for the guests. Shamhat began to eat, but looked over at Enkidu and saw him frowning at the meal. He was used to grazing in the fields with the animals on all four legs and drinking milk straight from udders, and he had no idea how to eat bread or drink wine. So Shamhat Patiently taught him, and once he'd got the trick of eating, he downed seven loaves of bread and seven bottles of wine in a flash. Thus fortified, Enkidu stood and groomed his hair and anointed himself with oil from the shepherd's supply. And when he went out of that hut, he was no longer a beast. He was a man. As they walked into town, Enkidu thought to ask why Shamhat had come looking for him. Shamhat replied that Gilgamesh, favored by the gods, is sometimes given to prophetic dreams. In his vision, he had seen a mighty rock fallen from the heavens that even he could not lift. And when he went to his mother, Ninsen, goddess of cattle, she interpreted for Gilgamesh that he was soon to find one he could truly call an equal. Gilgamesh thanked the heavens for sending him a friend who could finally counsel him and stand by his side And when Enkidu heard this, he started to get an unfamiliar warmth in his heart and resolved that he was definitely going to meet this Gilgamesh. Then on the road, the couple met a traveler in fine clothes. They stopped. They asked him, Where are you going? He said that he's hurrying to a wedding in Uruk. He loved weddings, he explained, because there would be a huge mountain of delicious food and drink. And after the party he would be able to see King Gilgamesh himself. Really, seems more like a wedding crasher than a wedding guest, to be honest, but so it goes. Enkidu asked why Gilgamesh would be present at this wedding, and the traveler explained that during the wedding, it would be the king, not the husband, who got to part the wife's veil, and it would be the king, not the husband, that knew the maiden first. Enkidu paused. Sort of processed this. He's pretty new to the whole civilization thing, but pretty soon his face grew red and a fury swelled within him. He bellowed that he would challenge this Gilgamesh. When he saw him, he would shout, I am the mightiest in the land. Look upon me in despair. And without thinking, he rushed down the road to the distant city, the towers reaching even above the horizon leaving Shamhat and the Traveler behind. Enkidu burst through the huge gates of high-walled Uruk and barreled down the broad streets, bustling with traffic. Wherever he went, the people looked up in awe. Here, finally, was one who could challenge Gilgamesh and stand as his equal. Nearly as tall and a bit more broad, he was a wild giant to challenge the god-king. A messenger brought the rumors of a giant to Gilgamesh at the wedding feast, and he perked up, quite excited that Enkidu had finally arrived, but he wished to enjoy the wedding first. There were three more courses left, Babylonian lamb with licorice and juniper berries, followed by zamzaganu, partridge fried in sheep fat with leeks, dates, garlic, and turnips, and finally a large pot of zukanda a stew of lamb, thickened by its own fat and blood. The music was pleasant, though it seemed like the same ludist kept showing up at every fashionable wedding, and Gilgamesh was starting to grow tired of her. Then finally, it was time for the king's favorite part of the wedding. The wedding party traveled to the wedding house, where the bridal bed had been prepared, and the bride was waiting. And when Gilgamesh entered the gate, he saw a giant locking the doorway, shoulders barely contained within the doorframe, and head extending almost above the roofline. Gilgamesh said, I don't know who you are, but you are going to get out of my way. And Enkidu replied, I am Enkidu, and I will not be getting out of your way. In two strides, Shredding the rocks beneath his feet, Gilgamesh was on Enkidu with a fist like a boulder that had shattered ribs and spines of lesser men. Enkidu caught it square, the impact of fist and palm sending a shockwave that shattered the wooden door frames, but failed to move Enkidu a single inch. Stepping forward, Enkidu grabbed Gilgamesh and in a single sweep hurled him against the brick fence, shattering the masonry beneath the mighty king. Gilgamesh stood up and, dusting himself off, grinned an evil grin as he faced the obstacle. Enkidu made ready and growled with feral joy as he squared off against the tyrant. In short order, the wedding house collapsed around them, the bride escaping out a back window, and they grappled in the rubble. Enkidu would rip support pillars from their foundations and swing 200-pound logs like child's toys, while Gilgamesh used the uneven terrain to bait his wild opponent into hidden pitfalls, though Enkidu's wily cunning would see him wiggle free at the last minute to unleash a hail of blows against the king, who stoically endured to find the next opening. Without pause, they grappled and hammered into each other in the wreckage of the once-pleasant cottage, while the sun sank slowly into the sky, the orange of sunset slowly changing into the blues of moonlight, shining against their sweat-soaked skin. Muscles strained against muscle, and flesh pressed tight against flesh, until finally wise Gilgamesh was able to catch wild Enkidu overstretched along a tripping beam. With a kick to the thigh, he felled the giant and brought his knee to Enkidu's neck. Gilgamesh had defeated Enkidu. Both breathed heavily, frozen in the moment, and the heavy breaths turned to deep laughter as both men reveled in their exertions. Enkidu said, There is none like you in the world, mighty Gilgamesh. Truly, you have the favor of the gods. And so Gilgamesh stood and gave him a hand up, and the two men embraced like brothers. And the next morning, the very first thing Gilgamesh wanted to do with his new friend was show him off to his mother, Ninsun, goddess of cattle. She looked at Enkidu and said, I am so glad, I am so glad my son has finally met a companion worthy of him. I heard of your battle together. Goodness, I heard it all the way here in the palace. And now seeing you in person, I am sure that you are going to be a good friend to my son. But Enkidu stood in the grand hall of the temple palace complex and wept deeply, his whole body shaking and rivers poured from his eyes. Gilgamesh's eyes grew wide at this unexplained sight, and he went to tenderly clasp his friend's hand. Enkidu, what's wrong? What's making you weep like this? And Enkidu turned to Gilgamesh, and he said, I know of your ambitions now, mighty king. I know what you seek to accomplish, and I fear I don't have the strength or courage that you have. "'I don't think I can stand by your side in the darkest hours, "'and I don't think I can help you in the battles to come.' Gilgamesh sighed and looked compassionately in Enkidu's eyes. There Enkidu saw the winning charisma of the mightiest king in the world, and Gilgamesh said, "'Trust me, Enkidu. "'Together we will accomplish immortal deeds.' And what are those immortal deeds that Gilgamesh has planned? What is it that has Enkidu so unmanned? Tune in next time to find out as we continue with the adventures of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. But for this episode, I wanted to pause here and consider the more timeless parts of this chunk of the story. We've covered here the first clay tablet and half of the second, and In this, we have seen just how similar the people of 5,000 years ago were to us today, and in a few ways, just how alien is their life. Now, most obviously, in the latter category is the mere existence of the temple prostitutes of Ishtar, but more generally, the gender politics is fascinating, complicated, and something I am mostly going to leave as an exercise for the listener at home. For sure... I don't think a single one of the 400 surviving clay tablets from the Sumerian period would pass the Bechtel test, but here specifically, Gilgamesh sees it as a step up to go from exerting himself upon every single woman in the world's largest city to exerting himself with a single worthwhile man. And now that he can wrestle with Enkidu, he appears to lose interest almost entirely in bed wrestling. There are parallels here with later Greek conceptions of masculinity. We see, in a way, the origin of bros before hoes. To move now to the category of universals in this story, the plot here is truly timeless. Passion, fighting, tyranny. The epic of Gilgamesh has always been a crowd pleaser and would almost seem derivative now if they made a movie of it and just slapped the Marvel logo up on top But of course, this is literally the oldest version of this sort of story that we have, with fragments of the story dating back perhaps as late as 2500 BCE, for a story meant to take place sometime around 2700 to 3000 BCE. Essentially, the first tablet is a porno followed by a kung fu fight. I would contend that there is no culture on Earth that would not be able to appreciate this story. But the most important theme to mention here is the question of what makes a man, or really the answer to that question. Since they don't even ask it, they just set about answering it in the formation and taming of the hero Enkidu. Human intimacy, clothing, human food, and grooming were, according to the ancient Sumerians, the four things that set a man apart from an animal better for sure than Aristotle's featherless biped and preceding it by about two millennia. And even today, there are aspects of it that resonate with modern sensibilities. It seems odd that Enkidu would need to be taught to eat bread, since I have fed human food to dogs and birds and squirrels without any lengthy instruction. Though, you could also see, perhaps, that here at the dawn of human civilization... The act of domesticating cats and dogs by feeding them table scraps could bring those animals closer, in a sense, to humanity. Clothing and grooming are fairly obvious, since even though other animals groom, the transition from hairy animal to well-groomed and well-clothed human is one that's easily apparent to any eye. Finally, the idea that it is human intercourse that creates the smell that frightens animals is a fascinating interpretation, and one that goes all the way back to those gender roles of ancient Sumeria. And for sure, both women in this story are defined, in a sense, by their wombs. One is consort and one is child-bearing mother, but both are also seen as strongly civilizing influences. Shamhat most obviously and most directly, but as mentioned previously, Gilgamesh's mother Ninsun is a goddess of cattle, but also more broadly of wealth, prosperity, and the pastoral economy required to generate the food surplus that feeds the world's first metropolis. In any case, now that history's first bromance is formed, next time we will look at some of the exciting adventures of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, a storytelling staple of ancient Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening.